0: they wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting ling ling city desk. Pull the press, pull the press, extra, extra read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, loose meets such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press.
1: Now you remember. The Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis every week of what's going on in the news media with some veteran journalists, and we invite you to join us and even share some of your thoughts, if you like, when you hear what we have to say. I'm Rex Smith, former editor of the Times-Union, now with the Upstate American, here with some of my colleagues Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette, now with the New York Press Association, Barbara Lombardo, who was the executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record, And Ian Pickus, the news director of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Here we all are. Hello. Hello, everybody. Here we go. Actually, we need to start with sports because I think what is going on right now in the most important area of sports coverage is indicative of how much media coverage has changed. And I'm talking about sort of the eruption, the decline, the explosion, implosion of Sports Illustrated. Ian, tell us, if you would, please, what happened there?
2: Maybe we can tie it to another big story this week, which was the layoffs at the LA Times newsroom. I'll give you my perspective on this. Sports Illustrated, as I understand it, was purchased you know, by a company more as a brand than a magazine operation, and it sounds like it's in its death throes at this point. Um, people have been laid off or laid off three months from now. Uh, the future is very unclear for what really was one of the most important magazines of the last century, and it set the tone for sports coverage. It was culturally important to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Now it's a monthly. Who knows? One thing in that story that stood out to me was the fact that its online hits are on the rise, however, even now in its incredibly diminished form. But maybe this is illustrative of a change in the media. You know, sports today and the way we consume it is a lot of video podcasting. It's the Kelsey brothers. It's the Manning cast. The appetite for the long-form, you know, 20,000-word feature on the backup catcher maybe has diminished some. What I was thinking about, Sports Illustrated and the LA Times, if you'll permit me to go on here, because I was at the LA Times in 2005 for a sports media, annual student sports media multi-day conference, back when I was sports-obsessed and working for BARB. And it was in honor of the late, great Jim Murray, who was Mm. an L.A. Times legend who also worked for Sports Illustrated. And that was in a different era for newspapers like the L.A. Times when they could afford to fly in two dozen students from around the country for three days of instruction at the L.A. Times. And when you read the news this week about SI and the L.A. Times, it makes it seem like now, that was 2005. We probably will never go back to a situation like that. It's hard enough to have an intern nowadays.
1: It's so significant that Sports Illustrated, which had 3 million subscribers when it was owned by Time, Inc., now the print product is virtually gone. But it's interesting you say that their online traffic has actually increased. But one of the things that is coming out of it, I think, which are it, when you talk about the podcast world, there is now talk about how much of sports coverage is actually owned and operated by the teams themselves and how people turn to that, totally eliminating the opportunity for objectivity, right? For fairness.
3: Exactly. And what you're losing with Sports Illustrated's diminishment is those great long-form pieces that showed how wonderful sports writing can be. I'm not into sports, but I loved reading Sports Illustrated stories because they wove a tale so expertly. They explained what was happening from track and field to baseball to football to minor sports. Maybe it speaks to the fact that we're not reading as much as we used to. Los Angeles Times, they were one of my go-to major dailies. That's one of the sites I would visit because they had a different perspective and losing what they lost a third or a quarter of their newsroom. We're losing that perspective. It was different than the Washington Post. It was different than the Boston Globe and the New York Times. And it's a major daily and the cuts there were just horrendous. It is a horrible loss for Sports Illustrated, although, you know what? Sports Illustrated has never been as good a product to me ever since they started putting those one swimsuit <laughs> editions out. Sorry, but I just never <laughs> got
1: past that. But we've all been through newsroom Reducing size, it seemed for a while that with some billionaires taking over um, of uh, the Washington Post, in the case of Jeff Bezos, of the L.A. Times, Dr. Patrick Soon-Shiong. Now it shows that even if you have a billionaire owner, you're not immune from the forces of the marketplace. Right.
4: That's sadly true. And as far as Sports Illustrated, I used to enjoy reading Rick Riley's column. Thought it was just really well written. I remember they'd have little features about up-and-coming stars
2: in the sports world, young people, right? That and that was a big deal when if your local person was in the faces in the crowd, that was a story on its own. That's what it was called. Yeah.
4: But I think that maybe you mentioned it, Rex. That what's happening now is that so much of what people want to get from sports, they are getting from things that are provided by the teams themselves and if they haven't figured out how to make money off of the stories that they would sell. I mean, how is the Athletic doing now?
2: Right, they, well, the Athletic was bought up by The Times and right. the Times it has replaced The coverage. Times sports section yeah. altogether and that's that's paywalled. And the Athletic is, I mean, it's a good alternative to what Sports Illustrated used to offer. But you're right, now growth is in places like The Players Tribune, which you know, my childhood idol, Derek Jeter, launched to give athletes the chance to write and publish essays without having to go through media journalists. That, that is a huge <laughs> oh, change. you know what? Us. There is
4: a market available then for politicians to do this. There same. you go.
1: Well, but think about what's happening now with ownership, ESPN, which has been just tremendously profitable uh, for Disney and for. Well, and for its lesser owners, I I used to work for Hearst, which owned 20% of ESPN for many years, and it was just a cash cow. ESPN now is looking for investors uh, to take it over and is considering selling part of itself to NFL. Isn't that correct? And wouldn't that tend to, (laughs) if you were the executive producer of ESPN, the president of the network, I think you would be very reluctant to take on the NFL if that owns a huge chunk of your operation And consolidation is happening Uh, You know, the WWE has taken over
2: Netflix and the WWE have signed a deal Yeah,
1: Netflix and WWE So the media information marketplace Is increasingly A, consolidating And B, coming under control of people who are not independent Which has been fundamental
2: Yeah, with ESPN, they've been in bed with the leagues To a degree for many, many years But you are seeing shows like Outside the lines, you know, hosted by Bob Lee, who was an old school sports journalist, or the Dick Shaps and the Jeremy Shaps, who would do real journalism around sports, that is expensive in its own right. I mean, I remember talking to Jeremy Schap about his reporting trips to Qatar ahead of the World Cup, where he exposed virtual slavery that people were working in to build these stadiums. Now, if you're ESPN and you're televising the World Cup, it's probably not in your interest to do that type of journalism. And with the NFL, which is the biggest sports product that's made, I mean, yes, you're going to see a lot less critical coverage from a network that is in business with the NFL explicitly.
1: Certainly, you're not going to, I don't think, see that network doing takeouts, significant features on, say, the brain injury sustained by football players, by what advances in technology of helmets might be able to do to save people or even changing the rules somewhat, or the fact that now the NBA, basically uh, everyone has begun to see it as a contact sport. Basketball wasn't generally thought of as a contact sport until these last few years. And that is, is basketball going to become what hockey is? But the things that you need good journalists on is the ties between organized crime and sports or the places in which there is corruption as you pointed out Ian where the construction and so on or, or even the subsidies for stadia that are being built like for the Buffalo Bills not meaning any disrespect to the Bills of course since we're existing here in New York State
3: <laughs> you know but so much of sports journalism also is cheerleading I think of, of particular sports and you have to separate that from the the true sports journalism, which is getting into the investigation and holding people accountable, but also I will drag into that category, you know, the the true profiles, the true features that were just wonderful, and I guess it just reflects what the sports fans want. Do they just want the score? But any sports fan I know, they love to talk about a particular call by a ref or how a coach played a game, and you would think that they wanted an objective analysis. Of I don't
4: it. think that management is so concerned about what readers want. I think they are concerned about what they can get advertising dollars for.
1: What about, though, thinking of sports coverage? I always found it difficult editing a newspaper in the shadow of the Saratoga race course to get thoughtful, critical coverage of the horse racing industry. Right.
3: Exactly, because the reporters are sitting in a press box. I think they get a lot of perks. They are advocates for the sport, just like arts writers are advocates for ballet or advocates for the orchestra. I mean, in some respects, people who cover government are advocates for democracy, I I guess. But yeah, I agree with you about um, the coverage for horse racing could be fawning. Mm-hmm. The Times Union
4: did, an, I thought, an incredible job with a series of stories about the problems with horse racing, the deaths of the horses, and the oversight of the industry, focusing on well, with Saratoga I, as a hook to I that. I can
1: say that it came several years late, and since I was the editor during those several years, I can say with this, with mea culpa, because it was almost like a slap in the face required that coverage. Yeah, right? And
4: don't you find that this was and probably still is an issue with when you have people covering a beat, that they may not be the right people to cover all aspects of the elements of that beat so if you're telling somebody to cover sports they are going to be more of the game coverage and what the coaches had to say strategies about the play but they are not the people that are going to go into the budget issues and the doping issues. It's a different type of reporter. I mean, ideally, it should be both types. We like to talk about the political coverage. You're writing about the horse race, but you're not writing about the issues, and they almost feel part of it might be their level of ability and part of it might be where they're coming from, that they have been sucked into that. They believe those experts, the authority of the people that they're
1: covering. Well, how do you get someone, if you are going to write a very critical story about the mayor, how do you get the mayor's chief of staff to talk to you the next morning once that story appears? I mean, this is actually a constant problem for reporters at all levels, keeping the stories going when you have to actually be tough and report what people on your beat don't really want to see.
4: Well, haven't there been stories about cities where, I think it was Buffalo maybe, the mayor wouldn't talk to the reporter for years and years because they've
1: a lot don't. of stories but, like especially that.
3: Especially in Utica as well. That happened quite frequently. But that is one of the tricks of the trade. You have to establish yourself as being fair minded. And over the years I've found that reporters who are tough and do the tough stories tend to get the tips, tend to get the the callbacks more so than the, the reporters that just avoid the critical stories. It's just good guy
2: reporters tend to finish last. We've talked about it on the show before, but the maxim is stab them in the heart and not the back. And they will have some respect for that, especially with respect to the racing industry, which is such an insular world. I remember being in the press box there one day when everyone would rather write about who who won the feature race uh, that afternoon. And Governor Spitzer did a gaggle about the potential uh, change in ownership of the racing uh, industry in New York when, when Naira was under one of the many times it's been under a cloud. <laughs> um, and the the reporters were the same people who were covering the industry and the result of the day. And you are absolutely right. That is a tricky thing to pull off. Yeah.
1: it's And, and it always has been. And sometimes the... Targets of the reporting will take after the business as opposed to taking after the reporter. In our community, this was uh, when the Democratic machine in Albany uh, cracked down on the Times Union in the 1970s and uh, refused to uh, provide the tax break that the Times Union needed to expand its headquarters down in, in downtown Albany. And uh, Hearst decided to move the paper out to Colony. <laughs> uh, so there you go, Mayor Corning. It was interesting, but it was it was because they were upset about the coverage of such people as Bill Kennedy, who was then writing about urban issues for the Times Union. That uh, that kind of thing happened. That kind of coverage, though, is is not only uh, hard to do, but it's also expensive because it takes time. And again, we're coming back to the financial issues here. It's harder to make that happen when your staff has been decimated, as the L.A. Times, as you say, has just lost 200 people from the newsroom. A remarkable impact there. Well, these are tough times, actually uh, Chaos, they say, at the Los Angeles Times Because their top three editors have resigned 200 layoffs It's it's really quite a lot of drama For what is the largest newsroom In the western United States And we'll kind of have to keep an eye on it Because it is indicative of a lot of what's going on It's the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio I'm Rex Smith here with Judy Patrick Barbara Lombardo and Ian Pickus And if you would like to share your thoughts On any of the issues we're talking about Media at wamc.org Is how you can send us email I don't think we have any interesting emails today, but uh, you know we're always happy to hear from you. By the way, we have to talk about politics just because it's interesting, and I just love this story that um, Sean Hannity of Fox News, which is of course a mislabeled uh, operation. There's no news on is Fox. Is he still on the air? Yeah, oh, is he? <laughs> <laughs> um, The stock market, you know, hit a new high, uh, all-time high on the stock market. And Hannity used to make such a big deal out of this under the Trump administration. By golly, isn't Donald Trump terrific? He says, well, yeah, it's not such a big deal. You know, it can go down as quickly as it goes up. Uh, This is no—it has nothing to do with Joe Biden. So I just want to point this out to our listeners who— May have some support for Fox News Lingering in their minds Folks, don't pay attention It's not true
3: (laughs) Right, and the article mentions all the times When Sean Hannity said that This was an important issue. This was an important benchmark. It's just like the gas prices. Remember, anti-Biden people, especially in the media, were were jumping on the fact that gas was maybe $4 or $5 a gallon. Now that it's come down, you don't hear that anymore. Um, You don't see the trips to the gasoline station where it's $8 a gallon. I think that it's selective coverage of events and the hypocrisy is never called out and in this in Sean Hannity's case it needs to be.
2: I remember in the Trump administration hearing a lot of analysis from people who play the game for a living saying you as a president do not celebrate the stock market because it does go down inevitably and then you have to wear that. So yeah, I mean if you if you look at the transcript in this story, it's it's dozens of times that Hannity was listing it as an accomplishment. So well, now it's a different person in the White House. Does, it doesn't count
4: right. it does make me wonder about what we use we in the normal people mainstream media, how we reported it when when Trump was shouting about how how great the stock market was doing under his tenure and did we say that only eight percent of citizens have, you know, how often did we also get sucked into reporting that as news and that pe- that gets into people's
1: heads? It's easy stuff to report. It's like uh, reporting politics as sports. It's like reporting it as uh, who's winning, who's losing, who's up, uh, which is what we heard so much of in the aftermath of the New Hampshire
2: primary, right? If I could quote Kai Riesdahl from Marketplace heard on this station, the stock market mm-hmm. is not the economy.
1: Yeah, he does say that all the time. I love that. And
4: Thank as you. a reader from Valley Falls can remind us, we don't really know how to report about <laughs> the economy anyway.
1: Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I, I,
4: I am concerned about you know now when the stock market does hit a high, you know how should that be reported correctly? Should we be saying now under President Biden it's been it, it's a it's a high, which is true, but that it's not because of the president. It's a very small factor about the economy. It doesn't affect pe- most people's lives. Yeah, how do you, How should we be reporting that?
3: Right, cause not like it, Hannity. Because it voted. trickles down to the mainstream voter. When Have you heard some of the coverage of uh, the New Hampshire primary? For example, you had people coming out saying, yeah, I voted for one or the other because of the economy. What facts from the economy are they using to make their decision that facts? the economy is bad? Mm-hmm. Yeah, facts? You know, is it the fact that the price of eggs was high or that, that Sean Hannity says the stock market doesn't matter? It's, it's We're not doing a good job of bringing the, the economic news to the people. it's complicated. It's numbers. Nobody, a lot of people have a trouble
1: with numbers. And it's not as exciting as the contest, the political contest. You know, I, I defy most people to be able to describe the policy differences between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. What do they, where do they stand differently from each other on the issues? Their personalities are certainly different. Maybe that's how voters make a decision. But typically, we don't, Focus our coverage on giving people the information About what a difference it would make As to who's in the White House uh, and that is simply, in fact, we we've gotten over this a little bit, but when Donald Trump first appeared on the scene politically as a presidential candidate, the the network executives thought it was just terrific because uh, he was going to be lively. I, I mean, I'm looking at this quote from Les Moonvis, who is the head of CBS News in 2015. He was just giddy about Donald Trump running. He told investors uh, presidential elections around the corner and thank God the rancor has already begun. Go, Donald. Keep getting out there. Uh he
2: thought it was just great, uh, and I think.
4: Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. We
2: yeah. did read a critical essay this week that made that point that you know the me- the Trump business is good for media outlets in some ways. Um, I don't know what the alternative is. I mean, we've talked about this on the show many, many times. Uh, he. Let's say he's the president again. The things he says are newsworthy. And I still don't know that we have figured out a way around that. Yeah, it's
1: true. It's hard because it went for the the victory speech after uh, the uh, New Hampshire primary. he, He said, well, CNN and NBC refused to air it. And they're dishonest, and they should have their licenses taken away. Their this
4: licenses is... or whatever it is. Yeah, or know. whatever it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
4: yeah, so that there's that whole discussion about whether to take Trump literally or seriously. I do both. And we may not have to worry about uh, how we would be reporting on him under a Trump administration when they start closing stations and pressuring the owners to put things on or to not put certain things on.
3: You know, the argument's being made that people should be required to listen from start to finish t- to a Trump speech, and not just have the media take out, you know, the wild and crazy things mm-hmm. or the stumbles he makes. If they listen to the whole thing from start to finish, they would get a far better sense of his capacity to handle the stresses of a presidency. Don't care. They don't care. Mm. And,
4: they, and nothing personal. Um, they don't care. And how many times during his prior... Uh, Election campaign seasons did, did the uh, you know Fox News air they aired all of
1: his rallies so they heard everything, including his missteps and Boy, it's getting uh, it's getting a lot worse, though, isn't it? I mean, am I misunderstanding? But but he he can't keep well, of course. When you mix up Nikki Haley and um,
3: Nancy Pelosi, Nancy
1: Pelosi, that's pretty bad.
3: <laughs> it was just more than it was more than once. It was five or six times, and yeah. that that was Nancy Pelosi or when Nikki Haley was in charge of security at the Capitol on and January sixth. Oh, when you t- guys are picking on Trump
1: again. <laughs> oh, yeah. And his potential <laughs> vice presidential candidate, Stefanik.
2: Uh, <laughs> speaking of which, before we leave the topic of hypocrisy, I did want to just raise her gaggle in New Hampshire, Congresswoman Stefanik, when she was stumping for Trump and was asked if she believes Eugene Jean Carroll, uh, the Trump accuser um, who a jury believed. Uh, and she said, no, of course not. The media is biased against Donald Trump. And I dug up the 2021 statement that she issued saying Governor Andrew Cuomo should be arrested after the AG found that Cuomo sexually harassed and assaulted multiple women, uh, so she wants sometimes to it's arrest. helpful to check the record. Ah, oh,
1: that's wonderful. I'm shocked. Man. There's great. Uh, that's a journalistic practice. So she thinks that uh, Cuomo should have been arrested for an allegation, but Trump should uh, is by bi- it's biased against Trump after a jury has found that he raped her.
2: And this questioning by the reporter in the gaggle is worth all reporters watching because it was fact questions it was do you believe no it was not the media that ruled it was a jury you know and uh, she didn't ultimately you know concede the point but uh, it's a good five minutes of watching. so the reporter
4: did say it was a jury yeah
2: did the job
1: one more thing, folks, before we go, uh, and that is uh, crime coverage. Uh, I just want to cite a statistic that came from uh, Pointer, the Media uh, Study Center. The United States got safer between 1993 and 2019. Actually, crime fell 34 percent from 1991 to 2000. But stories about crime focused on homicide rose by over 700 percent. So journalism overrepresents communities' uh uh, that are underprivileged in crime coverage and focuses too heavily on crime, right? What do we do about it? How do you change that?
4: I would take one step back, and hearing a statistic's crime fell 34%, uh, which sounds great, I, I'm i skeptical about even numbers like that, based on what, what type of crimes, what level of crimes, where did these crimes occur, so that's, so I don't know, but if I uh, if I accept the general idea that crime has declined, um, on the local level, people still love to read about local crime and what's going on in their community, and it's not a proud moment for most journalists. I see the Times Union is struggling now with um, whether to, uh, when and when and if, to put the defendant's name in a story. There was one that- uh, The defendant, you mean. you mean
1: the uh, victim's name in a story? No, I mean the defendant's name really? in a
4: story. Really? Um, just read one about a guy who stole a cat and You know, the cat's missing and might be dead and somebody that a lot of people would know about. Anyway, it is a problem. It does uh, affect people of color and uh, disproportionately. I remember that at the uh, Saratogian Arab bosses, they might have been your bosses at one time, (laughs) Troy, you know, demanded that we include the headshots. The headshots of people who were committing crimes because people love to oh, see the pictures.
1: That's a whole nother topic. We're actually out of time. We'll, let's come back to this topic because it is a good time. this notion of uh, trying to prioritize public safety and community impact over crime incidents is an interesting uh, thought about uh, journalism in our time. That's all we have time for, though. Folks, you can share your thoughts at media at wamc.org. With us, the media projectors today, Barbara Lombardo, Judy Patrick, Ian Pickus, and I'm Rex Smith. We are grateful to our producer, David Gustina, for making this happen. And to you folks for joining us this week, as you can again every week at this time, here on The Media Project. They
0: used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspaper men are subject- The
1: Media Project is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American Rex Smith, Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, Barbara Lombardo, the former editor of the Saratogian and a journalism professor at the University at Albany, and WAMC News Director Ian Pickus. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm your producer, David Gustina. Thanks for listening.
0: Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now, publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising. Get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give three cheers for freedom of the press.